This is ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and joining me today is Dr. Elizabeth West. She's a resident physician at the University of California, Irvine, and Department of OBGYN. And as many of you know, I am also on faculty there. I've had the pleasure to collaborate with Dr. West on a recent publication entitled Sexual Aphrodisiacs, which is quite an interesting and very exciting topic. In today's day and age, we see that many of our patients have lost faith in conventional pharmaceuticals and are turning to herbs and supplements. And especially in the realm of female sexual health and wellness, uh, there really hasn't been anything that's been uh, FDA approved for many, many years. So people are looking to nature, herb supplements in order to enhance sexual function. And Dr. West and I collaborated on a wonderful article, and I wanted Dr. West to come in and share some of the important facts. So, uh, Dr. West, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you have an exceptionally busy schedule, and we do really appreciate you coming on the show today. So tell me a little bit about the whole overall concept of sexual aphrodisiacs. What are some important concepts that you think uh, the clinicians who are listening to this really should uh, know about? I think, you know, for us, our, our main goal in writing this paper was so that when a patient tells their clinician, you know, I've been using this or that herb, or I've been looking on the internet, and I've been reading about this or that. What do you think about it? We really wanted to provide a quick reference for clinicians so that they'd have some resource in order to give their patient a little bit of evidence whether or not these mechanisms actually are effective. We wanted to give them something that would sort of quickly encapsulate how the different herbs work, and then also if they're effective or if they're dangerous. So I think that that was really the goal for the article and the main concept behind why we decided to do this. Right. And I think the important concept you mentioned here is about evidence. And we kind of did a PubMed search looking at all the evidence. And people are taking a whole variety of things. And some of the concerns are very often these products are not regulated. There's no consistency. There's no reliability. And we don't really know what people are taking even from pill to pill or even from bottle to bottle. And it was quite concerning that many products that are being sold really have some interactions with conventional pharmaceuticals, as well as the fact that many herbs and supplements lack the efficacy and safety data that we have known in conventional medicine. Are there certain things that people are trying better to know about? What are some things, some highlights in terms of if you had to pick a few of the things that you found either interesting or exciting in terms of doing your research, what were some of the interesting and exciting herbs and or supplements that you saw? None of the herbs and supplements have strong randomized controlled trials to support their use. And so, you know, for all of them, we do need more evidence. But I think that the herbs and supplements that are most promising are maca, tribulus, ginkgo, and ginseng. Their data is limited, but still pretty promising in terms of patients using them and then actually having some benefits for their arousal, desire, and their aphrodisiac effect. So, you know, while the data is still limited, those, I think, tend to have the most favorable efficacy and tend to be the lowest risk in terms of the products that we reviewed. In addition, there are some products that contain a mix of um, herbs and supplements that are on sale in some of the nutrition supply companies like Argin Max. There's a specific Argin Max for women, and those companies have performed some of their own research 
that has shown that they are effective. However, of course, more data is needed before I think that we should be recommending those for our patients. And you talked about maca. I know that I certainly have some women that are using that for control of hot flashes. What about some of the other information about it? Do we know any more detailed information about what is good, what is not? You mentioned a whole variety of herbs that have promising evidence, but no randomized clinical trial data. And again, most of these have looked at both men and women in mixed populations. So I think our advice really would be to tread cautiously. Anything you want to add about a specific herb or supplement? And then we're kind of going to switch gears a little bit and think about some of the dangerous things, because I, I think that was quite remarkable, some of the things that you've uncovered. What about the positive things? Anything that strikes you that is really important for our listeners to know and take home? Yeah, so you mentioned maca and that you have a couple patients that are using maca. And maca has been used in the Andes um, in Peru for hundreds of years for fertility. And it's actually been used in animals to increase their breeding capacity for many, many years. And so people sort of took their inspiration from the farmers and started using it to enhance their own fertility. And there has now been some really promising data. There's been four well-designed randomized control trials looking at both male and female sexual response using maca. And three of those four studies showed that there was a positive effect on sexual dysfunction. One study looked at healthy menopausal women, one looked at healthy men, and then one looked at men with erectile dysfunction. There was also one randomized control study that did not show any positive effect. They don't really understand how maca works, but it does contain phytoesterols and phytoestrogens, so that might be the pathway that it's working through. But people have looked at in maca users if they have elevated testosterone or estrogen levels, and those aren't changed. Yeah, and I think the important issue to remember is that the doses in these studies was variable, and, you know, they went from 1.5 to 3 grams. So, again, we don't really know the exact dose or mechanism of action with many of these. So I think it's really important to tread cautiously, do your research uh, as a clinician, ask patients about herbs and supplements and vitamins as well, because of the lack of good, safe, effective treatments, especially for women patients have been turning to the health food store to medicate themselves. If you're just tuning in now, you're listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and joining me is my co-author on an aphrodisiac article, Dr. Elizabeth West, who is a resident physician at the University of California, Irvine, in the department of OBGYN. We've been discussing positive herbs and supplements. And now we'd like to switch gears and talk about some of the dangerous issues. And I know you had mentioned some things that can certainly be dangerous and concerning. So one thing that struck me was this whole concern about honey. And I found it quite interesting that you've uncovered the origin of the word honey for honeymoon. And people used to drink honey wine in order to enhance the honeymoon experience. But there is types of honey that have been advocated for popular aphrodisiacs in terms of romance and marriage, but some of them can be concerning, specifically about mad honey. Tell me about mad honey, Dr. West. Mad honey is from a specific region in Turkey, in the Black Sea region of Turkey, and it comes from a very specific nectar of a specific rhododendron plant, and it contains this toxin called a grayanotoxin 
that actually binds and activates a neural sodium channel, and it can lead to a continuous vagal stimulation. So at low doses of this grayanotoxin, you're going to get hypotension and bradycardia, but at higher doses, you can get syncopal events, AV blocks, and asystole. When I was doing my research, I came across this case report of an American couple who traveled to Turkey. They bought this mad honey that they thought would be sort of, a, I guess, an exciting <laughs> adventure on their vacation. And unfortunately, they both ingested it and then suffered from myocardial infarctions within a few hours of exposure. You know, I think a lot of people have a very positive association with honey. It's widely touted at health food stores as a natural sweetener. It's completely safe. It's this very benign product, but I definitely think if honey is being marketed as a aphrodisiac, you have to look at labeling carefully and make sure that it's not this mad honey from this region of Turkey, which is certainly toxic and should be avoided at all costs because it is lethal. So nothing to worry about your uh, local honey that you can get in North America. You have to really look and read the labels, but this is a specific type. Any other ones that are dangerous that come to mind? I know there's been some concerns with uh, this extract from toads. Uh, and again, there's some compilations that can cause acute hypertensive crisis. They affect the efficacy of cardiac medications as well as chemotherapeutics. But anything else that comes to mind from the article that is a concern that people need to know about? You mentioned the bufa toad, which is a toad that's found throughout the world, and there's a toxin in its skin that's been used in both topical applications and through oral ingestion as a hallucinogen, a street drug, and then has been sold as a Chinese aphrodisiac. That is completely toxic. I would not recommend any patient ever try that because there have been several case reports of patients dying after ingesting this toxin. Otherwise, there's a Spanish fly, which is dried and crushed into a powder and then ingested. And Spanish fly contains high levels of phosphodiesterase, protein phosphatase, and it causes vascular congestion of both male and female sex organs, but it can cause severe inflammation of the urogenital tract and also burn the mouth and throat and lead to urogenital inflammation, hematuria, scarring of the urethra, and there have been case reports of it associated with renal failure, gastrointestinal hemorrhages, and death. And so Spanish fly is another one that should absolutely be avoided. The article was rather comprehensive. We talked a lot about food as well, oysters and what have you. And you also mentioned something about chocolate. And I know the Italians did a randomized clinical trial looking at chocolate. I know there was a trend towards improved sexual function. It wasn't really statistically or clinically significant, but it's still kind of interesting. We tend to enjoy honey, have a lot of chocolate, tend to have a lot of associations with positive effects of food and what have you. But again, no real hardcore evidence. But I think the article is quite important. Any last thoughts before we have to conclude, Dr. West, in terms of take-home messages for clinicians in terms of sexual enhancers? The biggest take-home is that physicians and clinicians should really talk to their patients about what they're using because a lot of these medications can potentially have negative side effects and clinicians just don't have time to ask their patients about what they're actually using and patients often don't think of them as medications. They think of them as, you know, food supplements and therefore they don't mention that they're using these supplements 
and some of them have really negative interactions with blood thinners, as you said, with chemotherapeutic agents, or can be hormonally responsive and therefore should not be used in patients with breast cancer or other hormonally responsive cancers. So I think the take-home message is that clinicians should really ask their patients about what herbs and supplements they're using and then actually look up and take a few minutes and see if there's any published data on whether or not these supplements are potentially dangerous. Right. Thank you, Dr. West, for taking the time today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I think the whole concept of aphrodisiacs is a really fascinating one. You can certainly look up the article at Sexual Medicine Reviews. It's called Natural Aphrodisiacs, a Review of Selected Sexual Enhancers. And I think our patients are taking these and they don't know the risks that are involved. And I think the important concept is creating a comfortable environment to discuss the benefits and risks. And again, be a scientist, examine the evidence. And certainly there is emerging evidence about a variety of supplements. We have to be critical, look at the evidence, the sample size, look at the efficacy, as well as the safety profile. Because again, some of these herbs, supplements can certainly have impact. And again, many of our patients are spending countless amounts of dollars on over-the-counter products that do not have efficacy and certainly may pose additional serious concerns for interaction, for adverse events, and what have you. We need to look at the evidence before we advocate some of these compilations, including the arginine products that are listed in the article and what have you. So again, follow the evidence trail, and this is changing on a day-to-day basis. Dr. West, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to SexMed on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash sexmed to download this segment and others in this series. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, and remember, sexual health is general health. Thank you for listening.